following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight is week two, and uh, what I'll do is begin with just a little review of what we talked about last week, and then we'll do a guided sit for about 25 minutes, and then we'll have a discussion. Hopefully people will bring up some of the things you're noticing in your practice, what's challenging, what seems to be working right, both here tonight, the practice, but also during the last week. Uh, so we'll have a discussion, question and answers for 15 or 20 minutes. And then I'll talk a little bit about the uh, structure of our, like how we hold the meditation practice. We began that last week right at the end. Why would somebody be interested in meditating? So we'll talk a little bit about that and then also talk about some of the nuts and bolts behind the technique of meditation. So that overview will be at the very, maybe the last 20 or 30 minutes, depending on how much time we have left. So I can't remember if I mentioned, I don't think I did, but there's a simple acronym that you can use to help remember what you're doing in your sitting practice. And the acronym is just RAIN, so it's easy to remember, R-A-I-N. And they're not, the four instructions aren't really different. They're just different angles on the same thing. The practice is really learning how to be open to how it is in the body and the mind. And normally, we're um, running from our experience or running to our experience. So we're discovering this possibility of being receptive. Last week, I mentioned that just the balance of alertness and ease is a really simple balance to remember. So this is just slightly more instructive, this four R-A-I-N. So R is to recognize. So with this balanced mind where there's a, a certain degree of energy or alertness and a certain amount of ease and relaxation, then what do we try to do? We do these four things. We try to recognize what's predominant in the moment. So it, for our normal practice, it might be just recognizing the breath coming in. Just the simple, ordinary experience of the abdomen expanding or the abdomen contracting or just feeling the touching sensation as the air comes in or goes out or hearing the sound of the birds or feeling some anxiety about being in a crowded space. That may be what's predominant. So whatever is predominant, we have to first recognize it. That's the first task of a meditator, is to recognize how it is, or recognize what's happening in the moment. That's the R. The A, you can probably guess, is acceptance. So we recognize this is how it is, and then we completely accept it, not needing it to be other than what it is. We recognize, we accept, the eye is to investigate, but maybe a better, better word is interest. And we have, a, most of us have this sense of investigation as a, a, a very much a willful activity, like I'm taking my mind and I'm going to figure something out. But think of it in a different way. You know how it is when you're walking in the woods and you hear something 
maybe it's dusk or you, you, you see something move and you become really interested and awake and that's the kind of interest here it's much more of a receptive or a sense of awe like what is this what is this so interest is really letting the experience reveal itself we don't actually have to go figure out you know what is an in-breath or what is the sound of the bird it's not something to figure out it's just something to receive and so there is an interest involved in receiving some because if we don't think it's relevant we won't receive the experience we won't be intimate with the experience we're just oh, I know the breath or I know the sound of a bird why you know why actually be intimate be there so there is this quality of interest or investigation but it's a very it has a very particular flavor it's letting the experience reveal itself as opposed to feeling like you have to do something to investigate the experience it's more about getting out of the way just like like the example I gave in the woods you all of your thinking you'd get that out of the way and you would just be listening or looking what was that was that a bobcat what was that and there's a certain stillness in the mind because you're very interested in what it is and so that's important that's an important quality to bring to our sitting practice is that quality of interest so we have recognize accept interest or investigate and then the end is in a sense the the most subtle part of practice and also the most important don't don't worry if you don't quite get this I mean you'll probably get it intellectually but in terms of actually practicing don't worry it's uh, it will just happen over time it's non-attachment or non-identification so we're recognizing we're accepting we're letting the experience reveal itself we're being interested in the experience whatever's predominant or with the anchor of the breath we're being interested and then non-attached non-identified meaning we're just letting it be what it is it's an impersonal natural conditional phenomena something that's coming and going whether it's a mental phenomena that we're knowing or physical phenomena it's just something being known it has its own sort of uh, causes and conditions its own unfolding and we just give it permission to be what it is but we're not we're practicing non-attachment like we don't have an agenda for the breath we don't have an agenda for the sound of the bird we don't have an agenda for the anxiety or the tension in the body so whether it's a pleasant or an unpleasant or a neutral experience we practice not having an agenda not being in a hurry not dismissing it just a, a quality of equanimity so the N stands for non-attachment that's a major theme in fact if your friends ask you why are you interested in Buddhist meditation practice you can if you want or if somebody asks you what is Buddhist meditation practice about and you want just a simple answer you don't want to get into detail <coughs> it's about living with non-attachment that's a nice summary of what the practice is about or more technically we call it non-clinging or non-grasping but how to be a human being with duties and responsibilities with partners and family with desires how to be a human being with desires without attachment this is a little bit mysterious but that's really what we're cultivating in our city meditation practice 
is learning to live free of attachment. And that's that last part of the acronym. Okay? So, now, you can spend your whole 25 minutes thinking about RAIN, but that's not going to do any good. But when you get confused, you're sitting there and you just don't remember, like, why am I doing this and what am I doing? You can just remember, well, it's very easy, Mark. I just need to recognize either the anchor, which for most of us is the breath moving in the body, or whatever is predominant. So if there's something that's strongly predominant, then we either recognize that, or if there's nothing strongly predominant in the moment, we simply go to the anchor of the breath. We recognize it. We accept it. We cultivate an interest, letting it reveal itself as if it's relevant. You know, and it is relevant because this is what's this is our life in this moment. This predominant experience is our life. And if we practice being disengaged, disconnected now, then we're going to be disengaged and disconnected from our life in the next moment, and then in the next moment. So we're practicing being very connected, and that's the interest part, being intimate. That's another way you could use the I. If you'd like that word intimate, you could just use intimacy. And then N is non-attachment, which is basically giving permission for whatever the experience is, giving permission for it to be what it is, not needing it to be other than what it is. Even really yucky or unpleasant things that might come up in our mind or in our body, we give it permission to be the way it is. And that's not always easy, but that's that's uh, part of the practice, this part that's about surrender and letting things be. Okay, any questions about that? And I'll, during the sit, I'll guide us through some of the basic instructions. But you can remember the four, really the four tasks in meditation practice. Recognize, accept, interest or intimacy, and non-attachment. And the basic uh, way we accomplish these four tasks is we re- maintain a balanced mind by being alert and relaxed. Alert and relaxed as we recognize, as we accept, as we are interested and practice non-attachment. Okay? So maybe you want to stretch out your legs so you'll be comfortable sitting for about 25 minutes. Feel free to stand for a few seconds if you'd like. Make sure you have a cushion or that feels appropriate for you. <clears throat> Do what you can to find a stable and somewhat comfortable sitting posture. So just like with the mind, we want both the quality of relaxation or ease and also the quality of wakefulness or uprightness in the sitting posture. So just do the best you can. And you may know where you tend to hold tension and you can just remind those places in the body to release as best they can. For example, you can remind the eyes to relax, the brow and forehead, the jaw, 
any unnecessary tension in the shoulders can be released in the belly, pelvis. And we'll begin our meditation period by listening to the sound of the bell, receiving the sound of the bell. minutes, let's continue paying attention to sounds, learning that the mind can be completely receptive to sounds. needing to analyze or figure out the sounds. And appreciate how effortless hearing is. Notice how there is no particular effort needed to hear. Hearing just happens when the mind is undistracted. And now bringing the same quality of receptivity to the sensations in the body. So in a sense, listening to all the sensations in the body, this great ocean of sensations, the full range from the pleasant to the unpleasant, including all of the neutral sensations in the body, like the clothes touching the skin, being completely fearless or willing to feel whatever there is there now in the body, even if it's unpleasant. Even the places of numbness or places where there are apparently no sensations, just notice that too. The body is like this. So remembering this quality of interest or intimacy. As if this were the first time we were feeling awake to the body.
no need to control or fix unconditional acceptance the body is like this now can this be okay and we completely trust the body to do the breathing knowing that breathing can happen without any need to control it so just observe how the breath comes in the breath goes out noticing how the breath is in the body where the sensations are clear and it doesn't matter how it is it might feel relaxed or it might feel controlled it may be deep it may be shallow it might be fast or slow and have a clear intention to notice in an ongoing way the ordinary sensations of the breath as it comes in and as it goes out finding a particular place in the body where it's relatively easy to notice these sensations of the breath so classically that might be at the nostrils just inside or just outside of the nostrils or for some people it's easier to feel it in the form of the belly expanding and contracting with the breathing <laughs> you might want to choose a particular place for the anchor of the breathing and simply observe the breathing the breath comes in the breath goes out in out being intimate without needing to control the breathing the mind of course is in the habit of thinking so don't worry too much about thinking this ongoing commentary just let it fall into the background as we remember the intention to know the sensations of the breathing and you can even note in and out with each breath or if you're feeling the breath in the belly you might want to mentally note rising and falling with each breath if it helps the clarity of an of a attention no matter how many times the mind wanders notice when the mind is wandering as quickly as you can and then if possible simply begin again feel the body sitting feeling the breathing in the body and connecting and sustaining attention just recognize the actual sensations of the in breath or out breath and completely accept them see if it's possible to be interested to cultivate a continuity of attention because of this interest 
without any attachment, any agenda, just letting the breath be. And then the final instruction is If the mind appears distracted, caught in something, it may not be possible to immediately return to the breathing. So then let what's predominant be the anchor for a while. It might be some pain in the body or a disturbing sound, or it might be obsessive thinking or worrying or planning. But whatever it is, it's just something being known in the moment. So acknowledge it or recognize that this is being known. This mind state or this physical experience is being known here and now. And practice accepting it and being interested in it, being willing to be intimate with it without attachment, without identified or caught. Just let it be what it is. And then when the strong distraction is no longer disturbing, drawing the attention, then begin again with the breathing. So we'll continue now with about uh, 15 minutes of silence. Remember that pain, strong sensations in the body can be open to. So let go of the breathing and let the sensations of the pain be the object of attention. Practice accepting and letting them be what they are. And if they become overwhelming, then quietly, mindfully, adjust the body to relieve the pain. Do what you have to do. But turn it into practice. Now for the last minute or so, remembering this possibility of unconditional acceptance. So simply noticing the experience of the mind and body right now and see if it's possible to completely accept or open to how it is here and now. This is how it is. Can this be okay, this body, this mind? Can this be okay? And then if you'd like, one of the things we do at Common Ground is it's called Anjali. It's just a, a gesture of like, thanks. It's nice to have this time. We're not bowing down to somebody or something, but it is an acknowledgement that it feels good to have this time or it feels good to have this practice and a quality of appreciation or gratitude for the time and for the practice. So just use it if you like it. Don't feel like you have to do it. 
but you can just come bring your hands together. It's so the Anjali, it's called, is different than a bow in the sense that we're not actually folding at the hips. You just bring your hands together in front of your heart and bring your forehead down toward the fingertips for a few seconds. And you might just find that you like that gesture. And if you don't, then don't do it. So let's take some time. Feel free to stretch out the body. Adjust. Take care of your body. And we'll take a little time to check in with people. Uh, if you have any questions about the basic sitting practice or if you'd like to share something that you're working with or noticing in your sitting practice, something that's been difficult to just be with, or maybe something in your practice seems to be working really well that you'd like to share with the group. And if you do speak up, please say your name for everybody. So any thoughts people have? What are you noticing in your sitting practice? Yes. a wholesome attitude about thoughts that keep coming and coming and coming is um, it's not so much about stopping the thoughts as it is about changing our relationship to the thoughts. One of the, one of the things that makes thinking so unpleasant is the attachment we have to the thoughts. So that image from the day comes up, or that thought about today, what happened today, comes up. And the mind grips, it gets attached. The attachment, the attachment, of course, is just a word for this energetic way of relating to that thought, which is gripping, tightness, um, pushing it away if it's unpleasant, holding on if we like whatever it is we're thinking about. So you might just simply notice that. And one of the ways to notice that is when you have a lot of thoughts in your sitting practice, which for most of us is most of the time, there are thoughts coming up, right? So one of the things to do immediately, because the thoughts themselves, the content of the thought itself is so seductive that we just look at the thought, but what we want, it's almost as if we're looking right through the thought to the emotional tone or feeling tone that goes comes along with the thought. So when you look at that content that was spinning during your set, did you recognize any sort of feeling tone or emotional tone that went with it? Even in hindsight now, do you, can you remember? Mostly it's just sort of like, almost, you know, comes to the planfulness, kind of re- things keep popping in my head that review like, you know, it's almost like autopilot where things pop into your head that you know you need to follow up on mm-hmm. something about you forgot about something when you were sitting here quietly or yeah 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 so now if you're if you start to look more carefully with uh, with that appropriate balance of ease and alertness you might notice a kind of pervasive 
restlessness and anxiety about getting it right, getting your life right, not making mistakes, not for. And now that la- that level of anxiety is so pervasive that we tend not to notice it. It's like a background emotion, and it feels so appropriate, you know, to be anxious that we don't even notice that that level of stress or anxiety is there. So we want to start noticing it. If we can pay attention to the anxiety, that that tension or whatever in the mind and body, then actually the content of the thoughts are less important. And they're actually not what's predominant. What's really predominant is the tension or the anxiety. And we want to drop beneath the content of the thoughts into that experience. We'll actually feel it somewhere viscerally. You know, you might feel it as some contraction in your heart or tightness in your gut or, you know, tension in your shoulders or tightness in your jaw. It's different for different people. We learn how to, the body learns how to reflect mental tension in different ways for different people. But you can just maybe find how your body is reflecting that anxiety or that tension and use that as your anchor. And if you can really see that, accept it, so recognize, accept, become interested in that. See, normally when something's unpleasant like tension, we don't want to be interested in it. We just want to fix it or distract ourselves from it. But instead, we're letting it reveal itself, letting the tension reveal itself, come to the surface instead of being buried without attachment. Right? So we're not taking it personally. It's just what it is. That, that will unhook us from having to think about it endlessly. And we can change our way of relating to the tension. It actually can, can lead to a lot of release and more degrees of freedom as we move about the day then because we're not blindly caught in that sort of pattern of reacting to the re- anxiety by planning again, thinking again in ways that aren't productive. I mean, we don't need to think about something again or worry about it again and again and again. What we need to do is feel the tension and not react to it, really make peace, become intimate with the tension. And then that sort of brings it to an end. It allows it to end. But it won't end until we actually turn toward it and practice being intimate with it as if it weren't going to end ever. That degree of acceptance. And then things change. Mm-hmm. Other comments? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the biggest obstacles in meditation practice is sliding into trance states. It's really, it's really easy, especially once you practice for a little while. The mind basically learns various ways of, of removing itself from the present moment, creating pleasant, relatively pleasant holding zones for the mind. And we, meditators can get in these places for decades. And, and think, not, not, not in one sit. <laughs> Be like Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> no, but like every time we sit, after a few minutes, the mind has slipped off. It's in this sort of pleasant, soft, fuzzy holding zone. It's there until the end of the sit. At the end of the sit, it feels like, well, that was a nice sit. And uh, we go about our day. And it's, you know, it's a relatively wholesome thing to do. But we don't, we don't learn anything in that kind of meditation practice. 
So the whole point of meditation practice is actually to have insight, to learn something about the nature of the mind. So if you find that that's happening, likely what is happening is as your mind calms down, like in the first few minutes of your set, and maybe you just that comes relative that part comes relatively easy for you you're not staying interested you're not staying alert to what's happening so that translate often comes when there's an overabundance of tranqu- tranquility relative to the alertness and so what we need to do is we need to um, practice in a way that develops more and more alertness brightness in the mind so it's interest you want to actually, so if you're working with your breathing, instead of observing the breathing in a somewhat superficial way, you want to be, uh, have a strong intention to see more details, the physical details of the in-breath and that gap between the in-breath and the beginning of the out-breath, and many details of the out-breath. So not just the out-breath, but the beginning of the out-breath, the middle of the out-breath, the end of the out-breath. So in a sense, you're challenging the mind to see more, to notice more present moment details. And noting can be useful here because it, it makes the mind work to actually note what's predominant or what you're noticing, to make a mental note of it, makes your mind work. And that, that will keep you more in the present moment. So if you find yourself slipping off into sort of pleasant, dreamy, uh, fuzzy places, then remember, it's just, oh, I just need more alertness. The tranquility is good, but you just need alertness to balance the tranquility. Otherwise, we go unconscious one way or another. Either we literally fall asleep or we go into some kind of trance state and we stop learning. Does that fit uh, what you're noticing? Yeah. And I forgot your name already. Brian. Brian. You know what? I don't want to give up. I don't want to give up being able to go into that state because I get something positive out of doing that as well. I just you get a nice rest. I just want to be able to do both. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I totally, you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't know the particular state you're in, but these states can be quite restful. In a, and I mean that in a wholesome sense. But, uh, and they can be good for learning. Sometimes learning happens when I am in that trance state. Uh-huh. Maybe you could, well, we could talk about that because uh, it may be real specific to your own practice if you want to talk more about it. There are a lot of different states that the mind can fall into. And some are relatively wholesome and some are relatively unwholesome. And we're falling into these states all over the place, all the time. Um, in this particular practice, in mindfulness practice, we're not saying this is the only wholesome state. What we're saying is that if you're interested in insight and having insight uh, or a deepening of understanding about the nature of the mind, then we're, we're, trying, we're not trying to escape present moment reality, even in a relatively wholesome way. We're trying to develop uh, a, a sensitivity to present moment awareness. But we can't do that without a lot of tranquility. Because if we just develop sensitivity to our swirling lives, we just get tight because things are, things are out of control. So in order to be really sensitive with things that are constantly changing and that we're not able to govern, 
we need a deep quality of tranquility balanced with the with the uh, sensitivity. And I think there are different ways to use concentration states, as Brian's suggesting. But that's a relatively unusual situation for beginning meditators, so I don't want to go into that now. Although if you have any questions, feel free to bring them up to me at, at another time. Any other thoughts? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that quality of observer or witness is an, uh, a common sort of first way of being in experience, uh, being in meditation practice, in mindfulness meditation practice. And it's okay, but even the observer, even taking the stance of a, an observer or witness, is in the end extra. It's like to really that aspect of connecting, accepting and then being interested or being intimate. As that intimacy grows, there's no room left for the observer. It's like we're really connecting with the breath, merging in a sense with the breath or with whatever's predominant so fully that if we try to maintain a sense of, oh, I'm having this experience, that's just extra. But it's inevitable. So don't worry if it's there. Just just bring up a little bit more interest, not in being the observer, but in actually what's being observed. Be more interested in what's being observed. And from time to time, you can even look, observe the observer. Oh, the witness is like this, observer is like this. Because it's just another thing that can be known in the the moment. Oh, feeling like an observer is like this. Other comments or questions people have? Mm -hmm. My name is Mark, and um, sometimes when I'm... um, Letting go or trying to practice further non-attachment, I find myself having to remind myself to breathe. Um, and I know you said something like the body won't actually breathe, but mm-hmm. somehow that doesn't, it seems like as I focus or as I try to accept more and more, I sort of somehow get like I need to do that. Well, you can just experiment with not breathing sometimes and see what happens. (laughs) I mean, not consciously breathing. But just, uh, I mean, if there's a quality of stillness, you know, as you practice letting go, letting things be, non-attachment, and things get really still, then one one thing you can look, discern, is there a, a kind of a holding like, that some, somehow in your mind you're equating non-attachment with stillness. And there may be like uh, an unconscious enforcement of uh, holding still. And that somehow is affecting your breathing. But you can just look. Just keep looking, opening, being more and more sensitive to what's going on. And the breathing will continue. Nobody... I mean, even parents know that children who say, I'm going to hold my breath if you don't, you know, the child will eventually faint and start breathing again. So we can just see, you know, what actually happens. The other thing is when the mind gets really concentrated, breathing really slows down. So it may feel like the breath has stopped, but there's two things that happen. First, physiologically, the breath really slows down. 
And then psychologically, the sense of time, it uh, gets distorted. So it seem, it's like seconds can start to seem really long. And it may seem like we haven't breathed in a long time. But you, the whole thing of ordinary way of perceiving, that sort of falls aside. And so things just aren't like they normally appear to be. And so we have to give our, give our experience a lot of latitude. Don't assume that something's off just because it seems different. It, it seems different because the quality of attention is so unusual compared to your ordinary daily life attention. And so phenomena, the experience of being a human being seems really different. But, uh, and it can scare us, actually. Sometimes you might notice a lot of fear comes up. But that's just because it's a new experience. We're sort of experiencing things that we don't normally experience, so it feels like we're in a different place. We're not in a different place. We're paying attention differently, and so it seems our world seems different. It's not a different world. It's just a different quality of attention. You know, just like if we're going about the day and all of a sudden, sudden we started to see things as if we were looking through a microscope, I mean, we'd freak out. And so that's just a metaphor for when we develop a quality of attention that is significantly different than the quality of attention we have throughout the day, the reality appears differently. But it's not. We're just you know, seeing it in a different way, seeing what we always see in a different way. Yeah, so you can just experiment about like sometimes just noticing the stillness, noticing if there's any intentionality in it. If it is, practice non-attachment to that intentionality. You know, just to really trust the body, mind, conditions to do whatever they need to do. So you're not wanting something to happen, but you're also not, not wanting something to happen. Um, it's really more of a surrender and letting go. And if you feel like you're doing that, then you can really trust, practice trusting, I guess, and see if that's okay, if anything bad happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the back? Mm-hmm. So she, I don't know if you heard her over here. You heard? So that's a good question because there's often can be confusion between what I would call wholesome reflection, which is I'm assuming what you're referring to, and meditation, and it really is good to reflect, both in on very sort of mundane things like how should I handle this relationship in my life or this particular problem in my life, but even very deep spiritual questions, you know, what is the experience of impermanence? Uh, who am I? And in Buddhist practice, this kind of contemplation or reflection is very central to practice, but in the particular technique we're learning now, this mindfulness meditation, the, uh, a little bit of thought is useful, but not so much. So if there are some questions that feel wholesome for you to reflect on, it would be really skillful to set up your life so will you practice however much time you have to do your meditation practice, and then maybe stretch your legs, and then do some reflection because the mind will be in a really good place to do that kind of reflection. Or to find a time in your day to do that reflection, like maybe you do a mindful walk, for like you walk around the lake. Well, the first half, you might just practice being mindful, just in your body as you're walking. And then the second half of the lake, you can practice reflecting on important issues in your life that you need to address or think about. 
But if, if you don't give yourself specific time to think about what needs to be thought about, you're going to do it in your meditation practice, and it's going to screw up your meditation practice. Because you're going to feel like, I really do need to think about this. And maybe you do need to think about it, but don't do it during your meditation practice. Because you never, it's easier to think about problems than it is to do this meditation practice. The meditation practice is unusual because it's, it's not involving discursive thinking. And so we really want to make sure that we don't let our practice, our meditation practice, just become reflection time. Find another time to do your reflection, because it is important. And then a little later in the course, I'll talk more about using particular themes in our meditation practice. <clears throat> but it's a little bit different than I think what, what you were talking about, where you're trying to reflect skillfully on some problem in your life or some decision you have to make. Are there thoughts or questions before we go on? question. Well, first let me just address the noting because it is important that when you use noting that the noting easily refers back to the direct experience. And in a sense, the mental note, whatever you might use, it's like a frame that actually helps you see what's predominant or to see the anchor in that moment. So it, it actually isn't useful to do in and out if you're feeling your breath somewhere in your chest or belly. Like Meredith said, it's an, it, it just the actual physicality of the breathing doesn't fit with in and out. So then use something like rising and falling or expanding and contracting or something that actually somewhat describes what's being known in that moment. And then... The idea of, of using an image like an accordion, it's true that certain images are easier for the mind to pay attention to. But see, what we're doing in that moment is actually we're seeing. We're seeing an image in the mind. And it's actually different than feeling the breath. Now, you can note that or notice the seeing, but it's not breathing you're noticing. It's seeing or thinking that you're noticing. And so you just want to be really clear about that. You might notice that scene of that image in the mind. <clears throat> and then drop into the actual sensations of expansion or rising, sensations of contraction. Try to stay right there in the physicality as an anchor. So we're really trying to develop the physicality as an anchor, whether it's the touching at the nostrils or if you're breathing through your mouth, the touching around your lip, or the movement in the rib cage or in the abdomen if you're feeling the breath more easily down here. And 
as I'm sure a number of you have noticed, the image of the breath comes in, whether it's in the form of a particular metaphor like the accordion or just some abstract image. The mind, our thinking mind, is very much in the habit of creating images that parallel our, our physical experience. And then we stop paying attention to the physical experience and start watching the mind because that just happens to be more our habit. So you just want to be on the lookout for that and don't be angry or judgmental. Simply become more interested in the physicality of the breathing process, the expansion, contraction, or the touching if you're up here. And it takes some training because we're not used to being in our bodies, sensitive to the body. So it takes some, um, some uh, establishing of that intention to be in the body. And it really, it's such a relief to learn how to get out of the mind, out of the thinking mind. Maybe uh, another two or three minutes, if there are any other questions or comments before we go on. Mm-hmm. I was just going to share my reflection. My name is um, Kathy. And it's a lot to do with exactly what you were talking about, being experiencing the physicality of our body. And you had mentioned if we had any discomfort in our body to pay attention to that. And I was having discomfort in my shoulders. And so I was trying to just be aware of that physicality. And I kept noticing my mind go, or my mind starting to wander again. And then I started thinking. And thinking about my mind wandering and I realized how every day in my life I must go through so much of my life not paying attention to all the physicality and to that anxiety and the awarenesses that are happening because so quickly I find comfort in planning for the next thing that's going to happen. Yeah. So it was just sort of a good awareness for me. Yeah, and that insight we really want to have over and over. The insight that we're missing the experience of the body and how pervasive that missing is, how constant that missing is, that we're just not embodied. We're basically disconnected. And that disconnection from the present moment experience of the body is a real weight for us. So as a beginning student, you know, for the first several years of our serious practice, uh, there really is this waking up to the body. And unfortunately, I wish it weren't so, but unfortunately for most of us, what we wake up to is a lot of discomfort because one of the reasons we're not in our body is there's a lot of residual tension in our body. And so learning to be more sensitive, coming back to the experience of the body and learning to be sensitive to the experience of the body means being sensitive to a lot of discomfort, a lot of old tension you know, that has been frozen in our body for a long time. But it... But if you notice that even though it's unpleasant, it feels good to feel it. It feels good to be intimate in the body, even if what we're being open to is discomfort or tightness or numbness or whatever it might be. So this is something you can practice all day long, not just in your formal sitting time, but all day long, over and over again, just drop into the experience of the body. Just ground your attention in the experience of the body over and over again. Now the mind will wander away. Then you just, next time you can think of it, it occurs to you, oh yeah, here. There's a body here. And it's like this. Ah, here I am. This body, here and now. Can you follow up on that just briefly? Because mm-hmm. um, I, I had a um, medical procedure and some pain, whatever, and, um, and it's like, it seems like a good thing sometimes to be able to block it out. No? 
And I'm just wondering how that fits in with the being trained to, to why is it a good thing to block it out? What was your sense about, about that? It hurts. <laughs> mm -hmm. Does it hurt less if you block it out? Um, I guess that was my assumption. Yeah, yeah I, I mean... Distraction. Yeah. They did, you know how they do this at colleges, I get these college students to do these these weird experiments, but I, I read once in the Science Times, you know, they have a section, they used to at least, in the, in the New York Times, the science section, it came out once a week, and I remember a long time ago, like in the 80s, there was an experiment where, you know, they had college students uh, put their hands in cold water, which isn't too dangerous, but really painful if you've ever done that, and uh, like ice ice water. And uh, they give various groups, you know, uh, different instructions. One group, I think they didn't give them any instruction. One group were, were told, like, when you're in your hands in the cold water, uh, distract yourself. Think about it. And they told them what to think about, something other than that. And then the third group, they told them to just pay attention to the sensations. And then they interviewed them afterward, you know, about how it was and how it is now, having taken their hand out of the water. And that they found that... Um, that the people who, who were told to distract themselves were sort of the middle group. The most pain were the people who didn't get, weren't given any strategy. And the best were the people who reported the least amount of pain were the people who were told to pay attention to the sensations. So it's true that it is really painful at the time. But what we keep missing is the consequence of not paying attention to pain. Because it actually gets held. When, I mean, if we're conscious of it, if it's being received, it gets held. And so, now, that's, I'm not saying that Novocaine, I mean, I think there are ways to keep the experience from being received. You know, like you can block the, I don't know the signs of it, but the nerve receptors so that the pain doesn't register as pain. But if there's pain being registered, the, I'll just put this out as a, as something to check out for yourself, the most skillful thing is to be sensitive to the pain. That may be the... Now, I totally get what you're saying, which is it's exhausting to be sensitive to pain. Now, we might be able to be sensitive to pain for a while, and then we get exhausted. Cause, because when we're being attentive to pain, it's like all our habit energy is screaming, run away, get away from this. you know. And yet we're staying there with it. And so there's a lot of... Uh, it's uh, it's exhausting. So we may need to sort of remove our attention from the pain to get some re uh, to sort of recoup and rest, like pay attention to sounds or pay attention to the other sensations in the body for a while. But generally, when the mind is balanced, the instruction is pay attention to the pain. When the mind's out of balance, then basically do whatever you can to bring the mind into balance and then start to pay attention to the pain again. And so you can just take that, the, those two instructions and just experiment and see if it's useful for you, if it makes sense for you. It's true, when the mind's out of balance, paying attention to pain generally just reinforces reactivity. Because we're already sort of behind the ball and then the pain is just there and we just keep reacting, reacting, reacting. So paying attention to the pain is just reinforcing the reactivity, the hating of the pain, the denial of the pain, some inefficient strategy. 
So the first thing we need to do is bring the mind into balance, where there's enough ease and enough alertness. So generally with pain, the problem isn't alertness. The problem is being at ease with it, you know, tranquil with it. And that's the hard part with pain, is to have enough ease to uh, just let the pain be what it is. But it is possible to get uh, to develop the capacity to be with more and more intense experience. It is possible. It has to be quick, sure. Can the same thing be Yeah, I think emotional and physical pain, it's just harder with emotional pain because it's more seductive. So generally, the best place to, to work is with ordinary physical pain like an itch. And I think we talked about this last week. Because it's not going to harm us, and it's intense enough that it gets our attention. And so we can really work with it. And just ordinary emotional pains, like just little upsets, like being in traffic or being irritated because of some commercial. you know. And just to work with that little level of irritation or pain can be a really good place to practice being very intimate with it, sensitive to it, not trying to fix it or make it different than it is. So we're exposing ourselves completely. And then with those little pains, we see the benefit of exposing ourselves to it. And then we can practice with slightly bigger pains or more subtle pains. So I want to go on um, and talk a little bit about the Four Noble Truths and the basic structure of sitting practice. So the handout. Uh, that's on the table, if you didn't get it, it's two sheets on the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths. And I said a few words last week about that, and you can just review the notes later on this week if you'd like. I think last week I mentioned that um, in general in spiritual life there's a crossroads and I'm just defining some terms, and I think I did this last week, where if we live our conventional way, a normal way that human beings live, we call that a worldly life. And a worldly life means we're simply living, uh, and the activity of living is to get what's pleasant and to get away, with what, uh, get away from what's unpleasant. So this is, you could call this a worldly life, or you could call this a typical way an animal lives. You know, human, including human, human animals, where we're just trying to get away from the bad stuff and get toward the good stuff. And I mean that on all levels, not just physical, like getting the nice house or the nice bank account, but the nice relationships, too, and to get away from the bad relationships. So this is a wholesome way for an animal to live. There's nothing wrong with this way, but it's limited because no matter how competent we are as an animal, you know, competent meaning we really see what is skillful or what is uh, pleasant and what is unpleasant. No matter how competent we are, we're not ultimately in control. Life is fundamentally ungovernable for all animals, right? So we all kind of get that, I think. That like, it just take health, you know. Even if we're quite skillful at living in a way that promotes health, still we're vulnerable to illness, to aging, and to death. There's just no way around that. And no matter how careful we are uh, at surrounding ourselves with wholesome people, good friends, things are going to change. You know, people will move. 
or people will get tired of us, or people will die. So we're vulnerable no matter how confident we are. So at some point, for all kinds of different reasons, human beings realize the limitations of this basic approach to living. And then at that crossroads, we call that that sort of a spiritual awakening. Like, well, maybe there's another way to use my life energy as opposed to getting what's pleasant and avoiding what's unpleasant. Maybe there's another thing to do with my life. And I think what I said last week is, let's just call this other thing a spiritual path. And here, in a Buddhist, and especially in the Buddhist tradition, the basic definition of the spiritual path is instead of a path of getting what's good and staying away from what's bad, the spiritual path is a path of understanding. Understanding what? Understanding our predicament. So specifically, that means understanding the mind. Or if you'd like, you can use the word heart, understanding the heart. So the heart and mind, it's really the same concept in Buddhism, just different aspects of the same thing. So what the Buddha would say is, we're limited not by the fundamentals of our existence. We're limited by our understanding. That the reason we only see this way, getting the good, getting away from the bad, is the only way to live, is because we're not fully understanding what's going on. And basically, the misperception that all regular human beings have <clears throat> is that we've been conditioned to, uh, to approach or to view life from a uh, place of separation. So we see ourselves apart, right? It's like me living in this universe. And so we have this basic view, and that basic view supports, it sort of gets channeled into get the good and get away from the bad. Because as long as we think of ourselves, view ourselves as a part, then immediately what goes right with that, hand in hand with that, is the need to protect this sense of separation, this sense of self, right? And therefore I'm competing with the rest of you because maybe there's not enough of this or that. So it sets up, it sets in motion all kinds of ways that human beings and other beings suffer this sense of separation. So instead of believing in non-separation, which is just, you know, another ego pursuit, like as a separate self, I want to believe in non-self. So it's not about sort of having a different belief. It's about as a self, right? I, I do have this conditioning to see myself apart and to want the good and to not want the bad. I'm like everybody else in that regard, but I see the limitations of that. So I'm willing to spend my some of my energy at least pursuing, uh, trying to understand what this experience is, what this experience of alienation or separation is, what the experience of suffering that arises from this self-centered fear, this self-centered craving, this self-centered worrying, the self-centered planning, right? To start to look into that experience, to understand it. Because I see the limitations of just acting out the self-centered fear, the self-centered craving, I see that ultimately it doesn't go anywhere because I can't, as a self, control things 
in any lasting way. So we turn toward a spiritual path, a path of understanding. And the way the Buddha organized that, described that development of understanding is this Four Noble Truths, which is outlined in the handout. Now, I just want to go through it because I think it's a very useful way of reflecting on our lives. It isn't something to believe in. Like I said, to believe in anything is, is relatively not so useful. What's useful is to develop our understanding through observing, through waking up to our experience. So what the Buddha said is that there are four reflections. So this goes back, I forget your name, was it Carolyn? In the corner? Uh Pat. What Pat was saying about asking a question, well, these are, in Buddhist practice, if you want to ask yourself a question or have a theme to contemplate, they might be the four noble truths. So the first noble truth, and noble here means it's a skillful thing to reflect on. That's what makes it noble. It's like worthwhile reflecting on dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali word, usually translated as suffering. Suffering is not a great translation. Unsatisfactoriness may be a little bit better, but it's you know it's kind of an awkward word. Stress is an okay word, but there is suffering in life. True? There is dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness in life. This is relevant. This should be understood. So the first noble truth is if you want to develop wisdom or deepen your understanding, then spend your life contemplating, reflecting on the moment-to-moment experience of stress in your life. That's what's relevant. That's the gateway for deeper understanding because what do we normally do with suffering or stress? We normally run from it. Either we deny it or we try to we run by trying to fix it or to distract ourselves from it. Where have we ever been given the instruction, you know, in our life to wake up, to become intimate with stress, with suffering, to relax with it, to open up to it, to understand it more deeply for what it is? We're not given that instruction. So every human being, probably every being, wants to be happy, right? Every being. Even people who commit suicide really want to be happy. They just don't think they can be happy in this life. Everybody wants to be happy. What distinguishes people who have a lot of wisdom and, and real happiness from people who want to be happy but don't have any happiness is what they do about wanting to be happy. So if what we do to be happy is just this, you know, what I've been talking about, getting the good, getting away from the bad, it's pretty limited. And some people have particular conditions where they're not going to find very much relative pleasantness in their life. You know, one bad thing after another seems to happen to them. So for some people, this is, they still do this, but it doesn't deliver very much even impermanent or temporary happiness. So what the Buddha says, the first step on the spiritual path is to recognize that the gateway to spiritual life is to understand that there is stress, there is suffering, there is unsatisfactoriness, and it's relevant. It's something to reflect on. Not intellectually, but to reflect on moment to moment. Like, is there anybody here in this room that's perfectly content right now? So that means we're all 
to some degree, there's some discontentment or unsatisfactoriness. The question is, can we be intimate with it? Can we know it as an experience right now, as a mental, physical experience right now? I mean, if we are discontent, how do we know we're discontent? What is it about this experience that we're having right now that is that discontentment or that stress or that unhappiness? What is it? We're actually beginners. Most of us are real beginners. We don't know the experience of dukkha or suffering or stress in an intimate way. The Buddha says, if we learn this, if we are willing to open to suffering, then we begin to have, we can begin to reflect on the second noble truth, which is, it has a cause. Now, what we normally think is, the cause is the person who made me angry. (laughs) So we project the cause, we blame, right? And we externalize it. The insight we have with the second noble truth is, the cause is here. Sure, there may be traffic, or there may be an obnoxious person in our life, or the room may be too cold or too hot. But the not liking of it, the actual dissatisfaction, is something that's arising here in our heart, right in our mind heart right now. There is some way that we're relating to the heat in the room or to the traffic or to the irritating person in our life. There's a way that we're relating to that person that is the cause of suffering. But we distract ourselves by thinking it's that person or that particular behavior, or the particular pain in the body that is the suffering. The pain is just intense sensation. The suffering is the not liking of the pain. This is an important distinction. The Buddha or nobody with any wisdom would say that pain isn't pain. Pain is pain. Pleasure is pleasure. There is pain and pleasure in life. But what do we do with pleasure? We want to hold on. That's the suffering. The grasping, wanting the pleasure to last long, wanting it not to go away, that's the suffering. Wanting the pain to go away, that's suffering. The unpleasantness of the pain is the unpleasantness of the pain. The hating the pain, the wanting it to go away, that's the suffering. So I'm just defining terms here. We can't stop pain from arising. You know, being a human being, being a living being, means there will be pain and there will be pleasure. That just comes with the territory of being alive. There's pain sometimes, there's pleasure sometimes. Sometimes it's emotional pleasantness, sometimes there's emotional pain, sometimes there's physical pleasantness, sometimes there's physical pain. It's just what happens, and there's no way to avoid it. Now, some people have particular conditions where there's more physical pain and less physical uh, um, pleasure. And other people, it's the other way around. But no matter who you are, there's this spread. The question is, how do we relate to this spread, this from pleasantness to unpleasantness? If we react with attachment, with aversion, we suffer. And we want to see that that cause is right here in the heart. Because if we see the cause, we can abandon it. If we don't see the cause, we don't abandon it. And we're caught in the cycle of reacting to pleasantness with attachment, grasping, reacting to unpleasantness with aversion. And that's where the real suffering is in life. It's actually very easy, relatively easy, to bear the normal ups and downs of existence. It's completely unbearable to uh, deal with our reactivity to the normal ups and downs. That's what's unbearable in life, is not allowing life to be what it is.
you know, wanting good things to last, wanting bad things to go away. That's what becomes unbearable in life, a real burden. And that's something we can definitely do something about. But we have to first uh, respect the experience of suffering or stress, understand that it's relevant. It's supposed to be understood, not run from. And once it's understood, then we can understand that the cause is here in the mind, heart. And once we understand that, the third noble truth is the cessation. Like when we abandon the cause of suffering and there's an experience of a heart-mind that is unburdened, not suffering. So a moment of true contentment. That's the third noble truth. We want to reflect deeply on the experiences, however fleeting they are, when the mind-heart is relatively or completely free of any burden, any attachment, any pushing or pulling, trying to control life. A little bit what you were referring to, Mark, like those moments of stillness and it's and we react to them, like uh, letting go not just once, but an ongoing letting go, an ongoing surrender, an ongoing sense of deep trust. Now, trust does not mean being passive. Trust means that we let the personality be what it is. We let our response to the moment be what it is. So it's not about just sitting there, although we practice sitting there, that's our formal city practice. But we practice sitting there so we can live our life as a parent or as a friend or as a partner or as a, you know, a citizen, fully engaged. But we're letting go of the attachment. We're letting go of the holding, the reactivity. That's what we let go of. Does it keep us from being an activist? Does it keep us from being a partner or a parent? It just keeps us from the attachment, the tightness, the grasping. And that's what we discover every moment we realize a moment of true contentment, where through opening the dukkha to suffering, we see the cause, we abandon the cause, we have a moment of freedom. And that just inspires us to live. The fourth noble truth is just understanding there's a way of living that supports these moments of freedom, more and more moments of, the, of this freedom. So I'll come back to this next week, but I wanted to just give a, a broader outline of the spiritual path using sort of a Buddhist model for that. And to just, then we have a place to sort of understand, oh, so the meditation practice then, it's really creating the tools to help us understand the experience of suffering, the cause, and moments where there is no suffering. In order to have those three insights, or to do those three reflections, we need to cultivate a mind that is capable of insight, that's relaxed and alert. Right? And so that's why we cultivate that beautiful balance, so we can have a deeper insight into suffering, the cause of suffering, and the release from suffering in any given moment. So let's leave it here. Let's just take about... 20 seconds and let go of the words, take a couple breaths together. Just drop into the experience of the body for a few seconds, however it might be, even if it's unpleasant now. And just remembering our aspiration to do the best we can to practice this week at a minimum, if possible, of 20 minutes a day, but just do what you can. If you can't do 20 minutes or 30 minutes, just do what you can.
and to also remember that besides the formal sitting time, to practice all through the day. Whenever it occurs to you, then just practice being mindful until you forget. And then when it occurs to you again, just be as grounded in your body in the present moment experience as you can. So have a great week of practice, everyone. I'll see you next Thursday. If you have any specific questions, please come up. Come up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.